So this morning we are uh, we're in a series called Life in the Spirit, and this is a uh, a sermon series where we, as a local church, are uh, talking about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the congregation, and the the the, 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 the prominent and preeminent promise of the Old Testament was that God's Holy Spirit would indwell every single person in the New Covenant. So if you're a Christian here today, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, God has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of his Son and his marvelous light, then you have the Holy Spirit. God himself is dwelling inside of you now. This, was, this, is, this is categorically different than what happened in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, not everyone was indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Some were at certain times for certain purposes. Prophets, priests, kings, builders of temples, builders of tabernacles, and so on. Were filled for a period of time to accomplish a task. But the promise of the Old Testament, that one of the marked differences of the New Covenant, when Jesus Christ comes, the Messiah, the King of Israel, when he came and he inaugurated his kingdom, he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that's exactly what happens at Pentecost. What happens in Acts chapter 2, on this side of the cross, after Jesus has ascended into heaven after his resurrection, the Spirit is poured out. And what we're looking at as a local church is the manifestation of the Spirit. What does it look like in our lives when the Holy Spirit shows up? And I'm going to again, I'm going to do it again. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4, 5, and 6 to remind us one more time before we talk about what we're going to talk about today, because what we're going to talk about today might make your hair stand up on your neck a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit... And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So three words are used there. Charisma, diakonia, energia. So some are given the manifestation of charisma, which is a gift of grace to some people. Some are given the, the gift of service, which is diakonia. That's where we get the word deacon. And some are given the, the manifestation of, of, of energia, which we can understand to be a ministry, just a, a service to another person. And all those combined, not separate from each other, but them co- co- collectively, collaboratively, cohesively, corporately, are the manifestations of the Spirit. So we shouldn't expect that everyone has just one of these things. We shouldn't expect that if one of us has one of these things, then we're better than somebody else. That's exactly the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. That some people thought themselves to be superior because they had a certain gift. And he goes at, at, at length, he makes pains to say, that is not the case. That's not the case. A couple weeks ago, uh, I had a friend text me pretty late in the afternoon and asked me to go to a, a certain conference that was happening in town. I won't say what it was. 
and I, I wasn't able to make it. And uh, when he arrived at this conference, he just, he just, I think he just wanted to see what this would be like. And at one point during the conference, the leader of the conference said, all right, everybody, for the next 10 minutes, all of us are going to speak in tongues. So go. And people started. And this man was saying, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's my gift. I don't, know, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And so he, he, he tried fervently to pray, to ask God, God, would you have me do this? And nothing came out. When I was in uh, Bible college, I had a professor who was fervently trying to understand the gifts that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he himself went to a similar kind of conference. And as sincere as he could be, and I I trust this man's character and, and judgment, asked God, God, I don't want to miss something. If there's something here in your word for me, would you allow me to, to speak in tongues here? And it didn't manifest itself. Now my own testimony. As you know, as we've been talking through this series, I was not raised in the church. I, I became a Christian when I was 18, so I, don't, I didn't have a charismatic or non-charismatic background. My exposure to the Bible and to these things was, was through the text of Scripture, so I, I was somewhat of an open book to these things. And my own experience is that sometimes in my prayer life, I speak in tongues. And I, I, I say that with somewhat of trepidation and caution for two reasons. One is that uh, it's somewhat of an awkward thing to say. And two, because I don't want anyone here to think that if you don't do that, you are somehow less spiritual, less mature. Because we're going to say it again and again and again. It's not the mark and sign of spiritual health and maturity. It's not. It doesn't happen to me all the time. I know some in the congregation that say they do it every Sunday. In their devotions almost every morning. And, 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 and the apostle would not disparage that. He says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And I would that you all would speak in tongues. I mean, the, the man who's one of the most brilliant minds of the ancient Mediterranean world, who wrote Romans, says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. So we're talking about tongues this morning, if that hasn't become quite apparent at this point. So we're going to read another text. And as we've said before through this series, it's very challenging to preach an expositional sermon when there's just one word <laughs> given to us in the text. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple different places in the scriptures to help give us some contours, to help give some explanation about what this means. All right? So I'll read it to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then I'll pray, and then we're going to turn to Acts chapter 2. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, where Paul's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit that's been given for the common good. Verse 10 says, To another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Let's pray. So, Father, now we come to you asking for you to illuminate your word to us, to make your will known to us. Father, we pray that every heart would be enamored with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. So that we would see you and we would find all our hope, all our rest, all our comfort, all our satisfaction in you. And we ask that you help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one, what is it? What, are, what is this gift of tongues that Paul talks about? Acts chapter 2, verse 1, the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we who hear each of us in his own native language? There were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. It is the first instance, and I'm going to say here at the beginning that some would suggest to you that the speaking in tongues occurs all the time in the book of Acts. Well, I, I just want to rem- remind you by way of teaching that the, that the speaking of tongues occurs three times in the book of Acts at conversions. It occurs at Pentecost, it occurs at Cornelius' household's conversion, and it occurs in Ephesus when those guys say, we didn't know there was the Holy Spirit. Of all the other conversions, the end of Acts chapter 2, when it says many were added in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 40... No tongues. The Ethiopian eunuch is converted in Acts chapter 8. No mention of tongues. Saul is converted. Paul, who wrote the, most of the New Testament, is converted in Acts chapter 9. Tongues is not mentioned. It's not mentioned in Acts chapter 13. It's not mentioned in Acts chapter 16 at the conversion of Lydia. It's not mentioned in Acts, later in Acts chapter 16 at the conversion of the jailer. It's not mentioned when Paul is in Thessalonica and there's conversions. It's not mentioned when Paul is in Berea. It's not mentioned in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is in Athens, and so on, and so on. So when someone would suggest to you 
that whenever there's a conversion, it's attended to by tongues. That's just not true. It's not the testimony of the scriptures. It occurs three times, which is not insignificant. We're going to look at them, but I'm just making the point that it's not attended to by every conversion. It's not attended to an an overwhelming amount of the conversions in the book of Acts. So we ought not build theologies that say, if so-and-so didn't speak tongues at their conversion, they're not converted. Or if so-and-so hasn't received the gift of tongues, they're not converted or less spiritual. The Bible wouldn't have us go there. The Bible just wouldn't have us go there. So at the spots where it does appear, what does it mean? Well, I think there's two different kinds of tongues. I think the Bible would suggest to it that there's two different kinds of tongues. The first one we see here in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. It seems that these are real human languages. These are real human languages. The word here in the Greek, dialecto, is the word that we get dialects. It would suggest here that what these men are doing is they are speaking in languages that they didn't previously know. Now, what are they doing, though? What are they doing, though? What's been said is that tongues in human languages is an evangelistic tool. That tongues in human languages is an evangelistic tool. I'm not going to suggest that God could not do that. He's God. He's sovereign. If he wants to give you a language that you didn't previously know so that you could preach the gospel to someone, he can do that. But that's not what's happening in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what people are doing is that they are extolling God. They are praising God in their own tongues. Look at verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They're simply praising him. They're telling of his good works. They're telling of what he's done. They're saying this is the king who's come. The Messiah has come. Jesus Christ is the one that was promised and he's here. Praise God, praise God, praise God. That's what they're doing. So again, it's not to suggest that God could not sovereignly give someone the ability to speak in a human language that they didn't previously know for the purpose of evangelism, but that's not what's happening here in the scriptures. They're extolling God in their own native language so that people understand that God is worthy to be praised. The same thing, if you want to look in your Bible, Acts chapter 10 Verse 44 to 46. This is Peter. He's in the household of Cornelius. He says, uh, verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among them, the circumcised, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, think of the context here. As far as we can tell, everybody in the room's already converted. <laughs> there are the people that came with Peter, and the people that have just been converted at Peter's preaching, and those people start speaking in tongues. And what they're doing there is they're extolling God. Look at verse 46. They were speaking in tongues and extolling God. 
Was this another one of those uh, human languages? The text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. Third example. The point I'm trying to make is that the people don't hear an evangelistic message, but they hear doxology. They hear worship. Let's start at verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. So in hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in them all. It's the third time and final time that it occurs in the book of Acts. It doesn't say what they were saying necessarily. But if we were to build the argument based on what happened in Acts chapter 2 and then what happened in Acts chapter 10, I think it's fair to suggest that probably, we're not going to build our lives on this point, but probably what was happening in Acts chapter 19 is they were extolling God. They were praising God. They were, they were, they were, they were, they were worshiping God. That's the first thing that it is. In Acts chapter 2, it's a human language that's not previously known, that other people are hearing, worshiping God. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 19, the only two other places that it occurs in the book of Acts, it seems that they're extolling God. So then, the point I'm making is that it's not an evangelistic sign. This is more of a teaching than a preaching. I'm realizing that at this point. First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 14 where we have the most explicit teaching on tongues. Trevor will be more in this text next week, but I'm doing the hard work for him and taking this topic on. <laughs> You're welcome, brother. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to read a couple other verses. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. I think that proves the point we were making. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So that's the second kind of tongue that I'm going to suggest to us. They're both extolling and praising and speaking to God... The one occurrence in Acts chapter 2, it seemed that people, it did, it, not it seemed, people did understand their own language. The other occurrences, now that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, they're speaking to God and they're mysteries that are only understood by God. On the other hand, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. This one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church is built up. Do you see his point? 
as he's been making throughout this entire argument through 12, 13, and 14, chapters 12, 13, and 14, and the argument that we've been making, that the purpose of the manifestation of the Spirit is for the building up and encouragement of the body. And he's saying that's why prophecy is better, because prophecy occurs in an intelligible language. You understand what I'm saying right now, and that builds you up. If I were to speak in a language you did not understand right now, that would not build you up. If I were to speak in a language that wasn't even a human dialect, that would not build you up. Though Paul says there is a place for it, because it builds the individual up. We'll get to that. Hold that thought. That's going to be my application at the end. He doesn't disparage it. He doesn't despise it. He prefers, though, prophecy because of its purpose in building up the corporate gathering, because of its effect on other people. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. Paul will say that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. He says, it is written the law by people of strange tongues, and by this people, foreigners will, I speak to this people, and even though, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. What does that mean? I'm trying to build the point that tongues are not an evangelistic tool, and Paul just said that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign for believers. Do you know what kind of a sign tongues are for unbelievers? Do you know what Paul's quoting from here? He's quoting from Isaiah 28, verse 11. And the sound, the tongue that he's talking about is the impending Assyrian army. The sound that the people hear that they don't understand is the coming of judgment upon them. They're about to be taken into exile and they hear the sound of a tongue they don't understand and it is a sign to them. And the sign to them is a sign of judgment. They don't understand what's being said. So Paul's saying that uninterpreted tongues in the congregation is the same as the sound of the marching Assyrian army coming. Because there is mercy to be had. Okay, There is the ability to be made right with God. Okay, The wrath of God is coming upon the enemies of God. If you have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, then he is not coming as one you will fall into his loving arms. He is coming as a warrior who will take you into his hand and will cast you into hell for all eternity. So if I stand up here and speak to you not a word of mercy, that you can now bow your knee and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be found in him forever, but instead I come up here and speak gibberish to you, it is the sound of judgment. It is the sound of the impending wrath of God coming upon you because you can't repent of your sins and turn to Jesus if you don't hear an intelligible message. That's the point. You can't repent of your sins and turn to Jesus if someone doesn't explain to you the words of the gospel in intelligible language. 
uninterpreted tongues are a very, very bad thing to happen in a congregation. The principle is this. When God speaks to a people in a language they cannot understand, it is a form of punishment for unbelief. It signifies his anger. Incomprehensible speech will not guide or instruct or lead to faith and repentance, but will only confuse people and destroy. Therefore, if unbelievers and outsiders come into our midst and we speak in a language they cannot understand, we're just going to drive them away. If they come in here and we speak in a way that they can't understand, we're just going to drive them away. So in conclusion of this point, not of the sermon, some of you got really excited about lunch. (laughs) Sometimes it's a language people know. And they hear it, and they're edified by it. And sometimes it's a language people don't know. And they themselves are edified by it. Which leads us to the question, then, what does it mean by the interpretation of tongues. Is the interpretation, is interpreted tongues the same thing as prophecy? Now, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not going to die on this hill. I, I felt it needed to be addressed. This is where I'm at right now. And I think the answer is no. I don't think that interpreted tongues is the same thing as prophecy. I think interpreted tongues is much simpler than that. And this is what I think it means. That when we're praying in the Spirit, as Paul calls it, and he'll, he'll call it that here, he'll call it that two other places, as in Ephesians 6.18, he'll say it in Romans chapter 8. When we're praying in the Spirit, the one who interprets the tongue is the one who says, hey, it's okay. That guy's not Looney Tunes, all right? That guy is praying in words that he doesn't understand, and his spirit and his body is being edified. That's my working definition of what interpreted tongues means. It's interpreting the act of tonguing. It's not interpreting in the sense of saying, this is what this person just said and what it means, because Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 14, he himself doesn't even know what he's uttering. That when he himself is being edified by speaking in tongues, he's saying, I don't even know what my, my mind is not what I'm saying, but my spirit is being built up. So what I don't think the interpreter of tongues is doing is interpreting what has just been said. I think instead the one who has the interpretation of tongues is like a shock absorber. He's the one saying, explaining the process that's happening. Explaining what's happening. Again, I might change my mind someday, but after studying this week, that's what I think it means. It's simply an explanation of what's going on. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 to 19 now. And I'll start to drive us towards a conclusion and an application. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
What am I to do? I will pray in my spirit. But I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. He's just said that he himself is speaking unintelligible speech. But he's not disparaging it. Remember, this is the guy who wrote Romans, okay? One of the smartest intellectual minds of the ancient world. And he's saying there is something that is happening. When I speak in a tongue, I'm praying with my spirit that my mind does not completely understand. He even says that it happens when he sings. I think a practical application, I wasn't going to do this yet, but I'll just say it. I think a practical application of what tongues look like in a congregation, I think the way it looks like in my life most often is that it happens in my private worship life, when I'm praying, when I'm reading the scriptures, when my mind is stirred up, and I think it happens in corporate singing. I think those are the moments when my heart, when my mind is so elated and enamored with what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that it it gets to the point where it's beyond uh, vernacular expression. My mind is so, my heart is so enamored with who God is, it's almost one of those moments which you don't even, you don't even, well, you're at a loss for words. And it happens in corporate worship at times. Back to the text. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church... Okay, pause. In church is a technical term. In church, the word is ecclesia. In assembly, when we are gathered. So he's talking about this scenario, this situation right here. When the people of God are gathered together. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct than 10,000 words in a tongue. He would rather say five things that another human being is going to understand than 10,000 in a tongue. So what do I think Paul's doing what would, I, what would I think Paul would do in 2019 if he showed up to a corporate worship service? I don't think he would encourage everybody to get up and stand in tongues, speak in tongues. I don't think he would disparage it. I think he would say, I would, that you all would speak in tongues. But in the corporate gathering, in the assembly of God's people, I would prefer you to say five things that somebody else understands than 10,000 words in a tongue. Which is what's happening right now. This is God's word speaking to us right now. Hopefully in an intelligible way. So we ought not disparage it. Paul says, I would that you all would speak in tongues. And when we're speaking in tongues, we are extolling God. It's a way in which we are edifying or strengthening ourselves. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, as I draw to a conclusion, let me ask you a question. This whole time in this series, I've been trying to show us that what God's Word is saying 
is that the purpose of the manifestation of the Spirit, whether it's charisma, diakonia, energia, is for the common good. And right here, Paul says that when you speak in tongues, you're building yourself up. So is he saying that's a bad thing? No. No. The Bible implores us all the time for self-edification. Listen to Jude 20. This is a direct quote from the scriptures. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the word edify. You yourselves building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's probably the best verse to buttress the point that I'm making right now. Build yourself up by praying in the Spirit. Build yourself up by praying in the Spirit. And praying in the Spirit is sometimes going to come with your, with your mind, most of the time maybe, maybe all the time for some of us. Praying in the Spirit is going to be building ourselves up. God, remind me of your steadfast love to me. God, remind me again. Remember, remember. God, why are you downcast on my soul? We're hoping God, trust in God. Build yourself up. Edify yourself. Because... This is why it's absolutely in line with what Paul's been saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 6 and 7, for the common good. You edified, you built up, you having a shining Moses-like face because you're in the presence of God builds the rest of us up. You seeing God and being with him and walking in his grace and resting in his love and mercy and trusting in him and resting in him is good for me. That builds my soul up. Practical application, get up in the morning and do your devotions. Get up in the morning and do your devotions. Build yourself up. Put God's word down deep in your heart. Read it. Commit it to memory. Commit it down deep in your heart. Pray. God, build me up. Let me rest in your love. God, help me be a blessing to others so that when you come into this place on Sunday morning or we run across each other throughout the week or you show up in my triad or you show up in somebody else's community group, you're full of the love of God. And trust me, brothers and sisters, that's edifying to the rest of us. Self-edification is not a bad thing. I don't think Paul's somehow being rhetorical in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, saying... The guy who builds himself up the tongues, you know, he's just doing his thing. No. Don't disparage that brother or sister. That brother or sister is bringing a blessing to us. Someone who's a spiritual man or woman who's tasted and seen something that the rest of us need to taste and see. Thank you. I think Trevor is going to explain more of this next week. But when Paul says, I would that all of you would speak in tongues, remember the context. He's speaking to a bunch of overzealous tongue speakers that need to be corrected. Okay? And he wants to make sure they know, I'm not telling you to stop doing that. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. I'm telling you how to build a a fence around it, a hedge around it, so it's a blessing to others. But I'll let Trevor tease this out more next week. But I think when Paul says, I would that you all would speak in tongues, does not necessarily mean that he expects everybody to do it. 
I think it's something like Emma standing up here saying, I would that you all would serve in children's ministry. I would that you all would serve in children's ministry. Or for Dan Goots to stand up here and say, I would that you all would serve on security. Well, maybe not all of you, but (laughs) bad joke. (laughs) Or that Aaron would say, I would that you all would serve on the tech team. No, no, none of the worship leaders are going to say, I would that you all would serve on the worship team. But that's another point altogether. They've got their own pride issues that we... They know I love them. <laughs> that we can deal with. But I would suggest to us that's the tone based on the argument where it finds itself as a subordinate argument to what's happening in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 when he says, I would that you all would prophesy. He's saying, I don't want you to stop. So let me finish our application and then I'll close. It's getting late. Self-education is a good thing. Beloved, building yourselves up, as Jude says, in the most holy of faith, praying the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in love of God. Self-education is only a bad thing if it's done as an end unto itself. That's when it's a bad thing. Self-education is a bad thing when it's done as an end unto itself. But it is a good thing to take whatever steps you can to edify yourself, to build up and strengthen your soul so that you might be better able to help and equip others to be built up. I've already said practical application number one is read your Bibles, do your devotions. Practical application number two is go to church. Go to church. Go to church. Um, I was struggling, I hate to, yeah, well, I was struggling this week uh, with, with despondency again, and the Lord brought me to Psalm 42, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour up my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, and with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? What the Lord brought to my mind was to remember the countless times that I've been in this room singing with you. When my soul was downcast, when I was struggling to see God, this is where he brought me. To remember corporate worship. Do you ever look to the side and see someone else who is just elated and enamored with God and they're worshiping in such a way and you're like, brings delight to your soul, brings joy to your soul to see somebody else corporately worship God, somebody pursuing edification, someone else being built up. What we do here What we do here over these years, whether we're here for two years or five years or ten years or twenty years or thirty years or forty years, is no trivial matter. God attends the corporate worship of his people in a way that he does not attend the rest of the entire week. Making it a regular habit and practice, 
a non-negotiable in your marriage. Young people up front, make it a non-negotiable in your marriage. It's a non-negotiable. We will be in the presence of God every single week. You won't regret it. It'll build up your soul in a way that you don't expect when you're a 35, 45, 55-year-old man or woman and you're despondent, God will say, remember when you were in the house of God singing glad shouts of songs of praise and a multitude were keeping festival. Third application, pray for the gift of tongues. Pray that God would well up in your heart a joy and a delight for him in such a way that it goes beyond the expression of human vernacular and you speak in a way that you never have before to him. And fourth, remember, remember, remember that God has finally and ultimately spoken to us. Some of us will never have the gift of tongues and that is absolutely all right and okay because in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. In the word, the man Jesus Christ is found life. Life is not found in speaking in a tongue or having a certain spiritual gift, but life is found in the man Jesus Christ. And he is yours and you are his if you have repented of your sins and you've looked and trusted in him. He is yours. Rest in him. Trust in him. Fall into his everlasting loving arms this morning because in him is life.